Ele, esse cara aparece ali. Sim, a única função dele. It's like his sole purpose is to kidnap, as though he doesn't have a life, you know. This helps build the idea. Aqui o tambor não reporta nenhuma. Das balas. Ele estalou os beiços. Where's the bullets? Popped his lips. Don't need them. Sweet. Pelo contexto capitalista. Ora, se as pessoas concordassem... Sem miséria, caralho. Sem política, na literatura também. Entendeu? Mais escritoras mulheres... More women writers, more black writers, more indigenous writers, more writers who come from low-income classes. Diversity. That's the key. Diversity in spaces of power. But how do we get there? If we choose literature as an example... Hello and welcome to the Fictionable Podcast with me, Richard Lee. We're expanding our podcast so we can hear more from our amazing authors. We started off with Joyce Carol Oates pouring scorn on the fictional possibilities of a certain U.S. president. I would not write about Trump. <laughs> what a bore. What a waste. Then oh, we heard God. from Fiona Mosley making a case for the power of the imagination. So I think fiction really is a conversation. That conversation can only really be had if we take leaps of imagination, leaps of faith with our imagination. And Over the next few weeks, we'll be joined by Donald McLaughlin and Sabah Khan. But for this program, the translator Maria Jacqueline Evans turns interpreter, as we hear from the Brazilian author José Falero. Falero began by sitting down to read from the opening of his story, Flash of Dignity, and lighting himself a nice cigar. Hum. Dignidade relâmpago. Tá, e aí? Qual vai ser? Qual vai ser? Seguinte, neguinho. Na real, a gente já tem tudo que a gente precisa bem aqui. Ok, então o que vai ser? O que vai ser? É como isso, bro. O fato é que nós já temos tudo que precisamos aqui. Ele pegou a peça do seu belt e mostrou para mim, como isso, fechando os olhos e suando os ombros com ritmo, com swagger, como se ele estivesse realmente sentindo um beat e tudo. Ele estava totalmente baked. Eu também. Nós só burnamos um bud. Hot as fuck. The sun was shining bright up there, making the piece shine bright down here. I grabbed it to see what kind it was. The thing felt light as hell, so I opened the cylinder. I didn't see shit. Where's the bullets? He popped his lips. Don't need them. Sweet. So what's it gonna be? What's it gonna be? I'm the one asking you, asshole. It's all out there for us. We just need to want it. The world is ours. Above us, only God. A ride? I'm only up for a ride. I need a distraction, man. I need some fresh air on my face to forget my problems. Okay, no holding back. No holding back, bro. Chill. Go throw on some threads. Why? He popped his lips again. He likes popping his lips. Never seen nothing like it. No holding back, shithead. No holding back means no holding back, bro. Have you ever seen a bum in a veloster? Have you seen a bum in a Civic? Put on the sharpest threads you have to match the ride we get. That'll make us look less shady for real. It helps, you know. Go on. I'll get changed too. Deal. I went home and came back looking suave. Straight out of the bottom of the alley, a Don Juan from Villa Sapu, white shirt draped over my shoulder, sunglasses on my face, cap backwards on my dome, shorts hanging low, new swooshes on my feet. I stopped feeling lazy. 
I can never be bothered to pull a job at first, but then the mood comes, and after that, it's just good times. The ride they're talking about is a flash kidnapping, a crime where instead of waiting for a ransom, the kidnappers take the victim's credit card and spend all their money. So when I sent over some questions via email for Evans to translate and put to Falero, I started by asking why he wanted to look at a flash kidnapping from the inside. Tu deve ter observado aconteceu aqui no Brasil, aconteceu aí nos Estados Unidos. It's like this. You must have noticed, in Brazil and in the U.S. as well, there's been a tendency towards far-right beliefs and outright fascism. And that brings along with it a mentality that is exemplified here in Brazil by the expression we have, a good criminal is a dead criminal. A mentality that's crude, cruel, ignorant, and completely contrary to what's dictated by human rights. But when we stop to think about why this happens, it's a sociological phenomenon, and of course, like all sociological phenomena, it's not simple. It's complex and molded in different ways. But one of the fundamental means of molding this kind of mentality, a mentality that is fascist and dehumanizing, is the culture industry in general and the literary industry in particular. What happens most of the time? Very, very often, almost the entire production of the literary world, in fact, is like this. You have a character, bourgeois, white, so from the dominant class, and this guy tells a little story. He ends a relationship, he has a crisis, he gets sad, he goes to Europe, he travels, he falls in love again, etc. And during this whole time, the subjectivity of his character is developed. We know he's complex, he has dramas, he has joys, he has decisions, he has sorrows, he's human. His humanity is developed throughout the whole story. And when a criminal appears, who attacks or kidnaps him, in general, the humanity of that man is negated. It's like his sole purpose is to kidnap, as though he doesn't have a life, you know. This helps build the idea in people's heads that that person isn't important, that they're disposable. I want to find out how this guy got into the situation, you know. I want to know what his childhood was like. Did he go hungry? Did he have a fridge filled with food? Did he have parents who were around? Or was it an unstructured home life with the father drinking and then beating his mother, and then maybe the father wasn't around anymore? Was he raised with shelter, or did he grow up on the streets? What did he go through? Was he beaten by the police? Was he discriminated against by people? Did he lack opportunities? What's the explanation? I want to know this guy's life. I want to know and I refuse to believe that this guy is unhuman, you see. He's human, and what I'm interested in is his humanity, which is systematically negated to these characters in the majority of literary production. Another concept very present in all of what I write, in my stories and novels and cronicas, is the relationship between urban violence and social inequality. I actually don't even like the term social inequality because it's so passive. Inequality is almost like rain, so that no one is responsible for it. It rained. No one did it. And social inequality gives the impression that no one is responsible. So I prefer the term social injustice, because there's an agent that's promoting that injustice, especially in the socioeconomic context of capitalism. Like here in Brazil and in the U.S., right? So what happens is... There's a huge injustice which is promoted so that there's a social context where a small minority have a good life, with all of the best of the best. They travel, etc. But it is the same system that promotes almost total suffering and ensures that many people around the world don't have the minimum. And above all else, the society is stimulating the consumption. So you see, it's a social context that stuffs into people's minds that it's necessary to consume to feel human, but at the same time doesn't give them the material conditions so they can consume. So what's going to be the result? 
it's obvious that the result will be urban crime, drug trafficking, assault, kidnapping. So that relationship, that's not just me saying this, if you look into any serious study, the statistics will show that the human development index and social stability in a country are highly correlated to income distribution. It's that simple. So that's really present in what I write about, this relationship between urban violence and social injustice. And that's not a relationship that I've invented. It's something that can be observed by analyzing society. As soon as the narrator closes the trunk on the tear, on the crime he's in the middle of committing, he says he's living the life. Sitting in the car with his arm out, wind in your face, he feels pride, he feels dignity. Is that what he's looking for? First of all, I'd like to have the pretension to think that my work has some kind of artistic merit, right? And like all objects with artistic value, it depends on the person. Each reader does their unique reading. You highlight the aspect of what were they looking for. And it's in what I wrote, but I find it curious because there's something more important to know, at least from my perspective and the perspective of some people who have also read it. Did you stop to think about the fact that this guy's in love? He's interested in a girl, he loves her, and is frustrated by the fact that she doesn't give him a chance. Did you notice? It's huge, man. It makes me emotional just thinking about it. And I'm not here trying to get emotional about my own work, but the idea of it, just the idea of it, that this guy loves someone and is loved. His mother loves him, his aunt, his neighbors. He's cared about by a community, and he loves. He is capable of tender affection. He's human. This is a big deal to me, you know. This shines. It's the most relevant part of the story. But I'm not going to evade your question. You want to know what they were looking for. Here in Brazil, there was a TV commercial that showed some stuffed animals trying to buy a car. A little giraffe, a cow, and an elephant. And it didn't work. And then the ad went, only animals can't have cars. This ad was the epitome of the mentality that is produced by a capitalist society. If you don't consume, you're an animal. You can't be happy without consuming. You're not worthy of dignity or respect if you don't consume. If you don't have a cool new car, you're not a person. If you don't have a cool apartment, a nice suit, if you don't have and don't consume, you're not treated as a person in this mentality. So this mentality is produced in the capitalist context and projected into the heads of people in such a way that they truly associate consumption with happiness and feeling like a person, feeling human. At the same time, as I said before, this society produces shocking injustice in the accumulation of wealth. You can see that most of the capital in the world is in the hands of a few families. I don't remember the exact number, but a handful of families have the equivalent to what millions of people have around the world. I can't wrap my head around what an outrage this is. And in this context, what happens is this. There's a sea of people around the world who have no ability to consume anything because they don't have access to quality education, because they don't have access to culture, they don't have access to literature, and they end up in dangerous jobs with inhumane conditions and horrific pay. And at the same time, the capitalist mentality is projected into them and they want to consume too. They don't want to feel like trash. They don't want to look at a book. This is related to the last question. They see the books, they see the movies everywhere, and they're never about them. It's always some bourgeois Paul asshole that drives you crazy. You want to be in the cool car which you associate with happiness and well-being and being human. But these people don't have the material conditions to consume. So that's what these characters were looking for. They were looking for admiration. They were looking to be treated like people. They wanted people to look at them and say, look, there go two cool guys. Through consumption. And how are they going to be able to consume when working doesn't guarantee it? 
In the unjust context of capitalism, where these people were denied their rights and access to things, what can they do? To release this desire to consume that was projected into their souls. That's what they were after. What if your readers agree with them? What if they fall for the glamour of rolling and rolling in a crossfox around Porto the whole day? You know, Richard, this question reminds me of something. Some time ago, I was watching a documentary about Pepe Mujica, the ex-president of Uruguay, a really interesting character. And I don't remember the exact words, but Pepe's talking to a guy and he says that law is a posteriori politics, and they start discussing it. And that makes me remember a play by Bertolt Brecht. There's an interaction of a character and a police officer where the police officer goes, I'm a policeman, and my function is to repress dissatisfaction. And it's marvelous, because it's not just the police officer. At the base of it, law has the same function, to suppress dissatisfaction. You start to have dissatisfied people in a society, but the law is there to guarantee that they don't vent their dissatisfaction, right? Don't release their rebellion. The law is there to keep them silent in the place that was predetermined for them. That's what law is for. But Pepe and the guy in the documentary, and I don't remember what their exact words were, but they come to the conclusion that elections are a posteriori politics. Because when the majority of a society doesn't agree with laws anymore and start to disrespect them because they think they're unjust, you have a social revolution. And those laws are forced to adapt to the new social context. They're forced to reflect a bit more the will of the majority. And this relates to your question. Because what would happen if more people acted like him? Let's remember what I've said before. These characters can no longer stand being in a position where they can't consume. They can't bear it, so they go after consumption via the kidnapping. They're going after the consumption that they were denied by the capitalist context. If people agreed with this and started doing this, you'd have a revolution. You'd have social upheaval, and laws would have to adjust, right? Maybe we'd be able to get to a society where people would be able to consume. Imagine if laws had to adapt to the context of this kind of social upheaval. What can be done to have people not act like this? Guarantee them the right to consume, the right to a good education, the right to a nice apartment, the right to a nice car, so they won't have to rob anyone. We could move to a more egalitarian society. I'm going to repeat myself, forgive me, but to project the mentality of the population, this idea of consumption, this desire to consume, and then not give people the material conditions to consume, it's horrific. Horrific. How can we advance to a more egalitarian distribution of wealth so things will be less absurd? Because now we have a handful of families concentrating capital. There is a way for us to move to a more egalitarian society, and that's to pass through the social upheaval for people to no longer accept the undignified place that's set out for them in society. The poor, the people living on the street, going hungry, who don't have money to buy a car and then feel like shit. Imagine all of those people deciding... I think it's even worth quoting Pierre Bourdieu here. It's amazing how it fits into your question. Bourdieu said that he could never understand why the status quo was respected. He couldn't understand how there hadn't been more revolutions, because the vast majority of the population around the world in the context of capitalism are forced into a quality of life that's completely undignified, absolutely inhumane, and it's unbelievable that people don't rebel against all of this. So if people started agreeing and going around robbing cars en masse, then... As Pepe Mujic would say, that would be a political event. It would be a social upheaval in the political sphere, and after that, laws would have to adapt to the new context. It's simple. Guarantee that people have access to consumption, and they won't rob from anyone.
You wrote the story in a Porto Alegre dialect. What have readers across Brazil made of this? Brazil is a continental country, huge. And like you can imagine, there are lots of different ways to speak, so many. In the 90s, a group exploded all over Brazil. People adored and idolized a rap group called Racionais MECs. They deeply influenced my work from an aesthetic and also philosophical perspective. I'm a huge fan of theirs. People liked these guys around the whole country, and it wasn't an impediment that they were a rap group from the southwest of Brazil, from São Paulo. People knew their lyrics by heart in the periphery of Porto Alegre, in the very south of Brazil, or in the outskirts of Fortaleza in the northeast of Brazil, all over. Their language wasn't a problem. You need to think of the periphery as an existential space as well as a geographical one. The periphery here in Porto Alegre, which is where I live, in the south of Brazil, it's a space where I can exist as I am, without being ashamed of how I dress, without being ashamed of how I speak. As Manu Brown from Racionais says himself in one of his songs, most people around here look like me. I'm not different from anyone. So it's this existential space where I feel at ease, where I find people like me, right? Where people face the same set of difficulties that I'm facing. Lack of sanitation, money, a series of things that makes us belong to the same community. It turns out that most of the aspects of life on the periphery of Porto Alegre are identical to those on the outskirts of São Paulo. Isn't that funny? So the periphery of São Paulo is also my existential space. It's not a question of geography. I can go to the outskirts of Rio de Janeiro or Belo Horizonte or even Fortaleza, any periphery of a large urban center in Brazil. Geographically, I've moved. Physically, I've moved. But existentially, I'm in the same space. A space of belonging. A space where I can find my compatriots. A space where we experience life in a specific way. That's allowed for the possibility that the particular way of speaking in the southwest of Brazil wasn't an impediment for the things that they were saying in their raps to be understood in other spaces. Unfortunately, the same thing has happened with my book. It hasn't been a barrier that my book is in a Porta Alegre dialect, because we're talking about an existential space, because there are many layers of language in a literary work. If you think he's used slang here, that's one layer, but there are others. Hunger is a language. If the character is hungry, pay attention. He will be understood. That sensation of hunger or the desire to consume as in Flash of Dignity or frustration or anger is another layer of language, another place where I transmit something. Young people without access to education or a nearby park, no access to leisure or culture, without opportunities for work or anything at all, but with an unbridled desire to consume. And that's a layer of language that is present in the story and is understood in any part of the country. It's not a matter of the order or choice of words what slang is used. I'm communicating with people on another level. This has allowed things that I write to reach the understanding of people even beyond the periphery of Porto Alegre, where people speak the dialect you mentioned. And you're from Porto Alegre, from Lomba do Pinheiro, yourself. So how do you fix all this? Can stories play a part? I think we're facing a chicken and egg paradox here. I think the first step is to identify the problem, right? What is wrong that shouldn't continue to be wrong? We have a society full of problems, right? And I try to bring some of the problems into my works, like this story. Let's take an example, the thing I've talked about a lot, social injustice. The terrible distribution of wealth means poverty, means urban crime. This whole package we've already talked about. So we look at that and we can see that it's wrong. 
It's very wrong that some guy has a pile of money that would, in some cases, be able to lift an entire country out of poverty. That's wrong. Okay, we've identified the problem. What do we do now? In my opinion, this can be answered by diversity in the spaces of power. Diversity in all of the social spheres you can imagine. In businesses, you need to have women, black people, indigenous people. Diversity. I think it's the key word in all spaces of power that you can think of. In businesses, in universities, on television, in politics, and in literature too. More women writers, more black writers, more indigenous writers, more writers who come from low-income classes. Diversity. That's the key. Diversity in spaces of power. But how do we get there? If we choose literature as an example, how do you promote this diversity between bookshop owners, editors, writers, to have more women editing and writing, more black men? I think it has to do with controlling the narrative, and that's where literature comes in. I think it's important. Here's the paradox of the chicken and the egg. Literature will reflect societal changes. So the changes have to happen first. Before you think about literature, you need to think about diversity in the spaces of power. But it turns out that literature helps to promote this diversity in the spaces of power. And for it to be able to promote this, you have to already have diversity in literature. You see how things get difficult. It's difficult to think about where to start. And I think when you're having trouble thinking about where to start, you have to start on all fronts at once. So we have to start at the same time in literature, in politics, on television, in businesses, in universities. We need to do everything we can to promote diversity. I think that's the key word to resolve all of these questions. And I think that literature is one side that will contribute to this happening and will also reflect that progress. And that's what made me think of the chicken and the egg. Então, por isso que eu lembrei do paradoxo do ovo da galinha. Or to misquote Tony Blair, diversity, diversity, diversity. That was José Falero and Maria Jacqueline Evans. Here at Fictionable, where we're publishing new voices, different voices, voices from all over the world, we'll keep banging the drum for diversity. And if you're a writer from one of the groups currently underrepresented in English and American letters, we'd love to read your work. Head to fictionable.world and hit Submit in the handy menu on the right-hand side. And fictional.world is where you can find Flash of Dignity, along with brand new stories from Joyce Carol Oates, Fiona Mosley, Donald McLaughlin, and a comic from Sabah Khan. Search for Fictionable on your mobile, tablet, laptop, or internet-enabled barricade. For £20, you'll get a year's worth of exclusive new short stories and comics. Head to that drop-down menu and click subscribe. You'll also get unlimited access to our ever-growing archive of stories from diverse writers, including Ali Smith, Alan Mabonku, Adora Raji, and Serena Cat. We love hearing what you make of all our stories, blogs, and podcasts. So at us on Mastodon, Instagram, or Twitter. Or why not take a trip back to the early 21st century and send us an email on info at fictionable.world. Next time, Donald McLaughlin insists that Liam O'Donnell a character he's been returning to in fiction for 30 years, is absolutely, definitely not him. The spark was the memory, I guess, of running away from home for a very brief period. So he is you! No, he isn't me. <laughs> and we'll be hearing from his story, you guessed it, run away. That's all for this time. Thanks to José Falero and Maria Jacqueline Evans. And so from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Esther Pokujeni, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.